Welcome to episode 18 of the Analytics FC podcast. This week, I'm alone, joined just by Tom Warville. We don't have any guests on. So how are you, Tom? Yep, doing good. Doing good. Looking forward to the uh, Premier League fixtures after a pretty boring international break. Pretty boring international break after Canada finally beat Honduras in a World Cup qualifier. After we hadn't beat them in, like, not in my lifetime, I don't think. I can't uh, believe you didn't find that an exciting weekend. What about the El Salvador game? That did not go nearly as well. There we, we go. There we go. Um, just a quick shout out for Deli Ali's goal against France. Lovely, lovely, yeah, lovely strike. Goal. Yep. So what um, are we? What are we doing this week? So this week we're going to do. We decided to try something a little new, a little different. We're doing a debate, a sort of debate format. So we have seven or eight statements here. We're each going to take a side to defend or attack the statement and. Uh, just go from there. So seven or eight things that I think have been percolating around the analytics community over the past few weeks. Um, so the first topic that we're going to debate is whether teams should sell players outperforming their expected goals or not. Um, so I'm going to fight for this and Sam's going to try and battle against with uh, yeah, his ideas. Um, so teams selling players who outperforming expected goals, I guess this sort of makes sense if there's complete, say, uh, asymmetric information in the market, and all the other teams um, are, you know, they don't have a, you know, a real deep analysis team uh, within the club, and they, you know, they don't really analyse players or playing styles um, at like an in-depth level, and therefore, you know, if they see a player who's scored a lot of goals, say uh, Lacazette for um, Leon. Uh, then you know they're, they're going to see him as a really good goal scorer. Probably pay over the odds for him, and therefore, you know, economically, they're not. Uh, that's not sort of an optimal outcome for for their both the buying team, even though the selling team is making more money than they would otherwise. So yeah, Lacazette would be a good example. I think that he was um, sort of courted by Arsenal for a while, uh, seeing whether he would be like a good signing for them. And uh, we know Arsenal sort of track record with expected goals slightly, with a few sort of snippets from Arsene Wenger in. Um, press conferences, you know, potentially that Arsenal have seen this and and thought, you know, maybe we shouldn't buy this player because he's over outperforming expected goals. Whereas I think for Leon, it would make sense for them to try and sell him on at that point. So I think that, you know, if you're a selling club and you can find a team that's willing to pay, pay over the odds for these players and you can produce them or you have someone who's a backup who's just as good, if not better, than the player you currently have, then I think it's this idea sort of works. Um, you know, otherwise, if you've got all these smart teams in the market who understand when a player is overperforming and underperforming, it doesn't really make sense to go out of your way to try and sell your best players. So there are two players who have consistently outperformed expected goals year after year after year, and they're Gonzalo Higuain and Lionel Messi, who I think we'd all agree are two players you shouldn't be selling. And I think if you use this as sort of a selling tactic, saying we're going to sell players who outperform expected goals after one season or two seasons or whatever then you're running the risk of selling really, really, really good players. Like, not just a guy who's getting lucky for a year, but the next superstar, the next amazing striker. I mean, if you look at players who outperform expected goals, there's often a reason for it. So if there is a reason, like Lionel Messi, and you can watch the video and say, I understand why he's, why he's outperforming his expected goals, because he's taking these chances wonderfully. He's making space for himself where it wouldn't exist. Normally, he's just an amazing player. And then you can watch someone like, let's say, um, a Charlie Austin last year or a uh, Lacazette, as you mentioned, someone who's outperforming expected goals. And it's probably just getting lucky. He's not doing anything that special. He's not doing anything 
that would that would sort of convince you that he's going to continue outperforming expected goals. So I think if you're using this as like a baseline for how to sell players or whether or not to sell a player, you run a huge, huge risk of selling an incredible player by assuming they're overperforming or assuming that it's something that's unsustainable just because they're outperforming their expected goal totals. So yeah, I think it's a really dangerous way of deciding who to sell and who not to sell. Equally, I think... Um say going back to the Lacazette example for example uh, <laughs> that was good going back to the Lacazette example um, I think that there's got to be a level of sort of looking at the wider picture and thinking we have this player you know what's the you know what if we sell this player how much of you know the the money that we receive from them how badly do we need that money um, for a club of our size is a player like this going to come along every you know one in a hundred players one in a thousand players Um and I think it, it depends also on you know if we he if we lose him how much impact is going to have. So I think that with the Lionel Messi example, I'm unsure um, what sides are going to be able to buy him or, or, or you know afford him or what sides he's even going to move to. Because um, I mean, obviously with players like this, I'd expect most of them are going to be moving to plus sides that either are better than the team they currently play for or just have more money than the side currently. Um, so I think with, say, the Messi and Higuain examples, Higuain moving away from Napoli now to, say, you know, Arsenal, uh, Liverpool, Man City potentially, you know, any of the sort of bigger sides in England or big sides in all of the big European leagues sort of makes sense because they have the financial uh, financials to back up um, sort of their interest in that player. And so whether he's, you know, overperforming expected goals or not, for Napoli it potentially would make sense because... You know they can make quite a bit, a lot of money from uh, Higuain. They can invest that in the club, in the stadium, in the academy, in in sort of players now to fill that hole short term. Um, so I think on, on sort of a case by case basis, it would make sense. Say if you have uh, trying to think of another example in like a a lower a lower league. Um, say Jordan Rhodes, for example. Jordan Rhodes scored a like phenomenal a phenomenal amount of goals for like two or three straight seasons, and no one came in for him, uh, and he was probably. I don't know the expected goals figures, but he was certainly in line with or you know potentially exceeded his expected goals. It would make sense for a club like Blackburn to take you know a 15, 16 million pound, say like uh, Leeds took for Ross McCormack, because for the size of that team, it makes sense to cash in on these players because of just the, the very fact that they are smaller, uh, less competitive financially teams. Yeah, I don't know if Higuain is a great example of what, you wanna, what you're trying to say though there, because... If you look at, you said it's often teams going for players going from a smaller team to a bigger team, and that's like the exact opposite that happened with Higuain, right? When he was at Real Madrid and consistently outperforming expected goals, and then Real Madrid said, "Well, we're going to opt to go with Benzema. He's our better option." And I really don't think that. I, it's hard to say that. I mean, it's hard to bash Benzema, but I think that if they had Higuain in that squad, it would be a different story, maybe. And I don't think that was a good rationale to sell him to Napoli was he's outperforming his expected goals, therefore we should sell him on. And maybe if he moves on from Napoli as like a second move, that could be an argument to make. But I think if you look at Higuain's past, that was probably a poor, maybe not a poor decision, but a poor rationale to sell Higuain. Absolutely. I, I think, I think yeah, Higuain is probably a poor example. But then equally, you look at the current situation with Benzema and think, well, Higuain... Yeah, that's, <laughs> that was why I struggled with it. I don't want to say that Yep. Benzema's not a good striker for them because that's obviously not true. So, mm. No, true. So this topic came up because of a debate between, well, essentially Chad Murphy started it 
Bobby responded, and then Chad responded to response. And I think they were all sort of made interesting points, but I think they came to an agreement that it's not, both of them, Chad and Bobby, I think came to the agreement that this isn't like a rule that any club should follow. Is it something to start looking into? Is it saying, okay, this is a war- maybe a warning sign. Now let's look at why. And the why is what we should make our decision based off, not necessarily the expected goals number themselves. Those are just the starting point, which like anything in data, you need a starting point and then you move to the video analysis or more data analysis or looking at, well, Bobby looked at Al Shawari's injuries that have caused him to like his performances to be non-existent because he's not play- he hasn't played a lot of the last couple of years. So I think that's, that's sort of the right answer here is that when we look at expected goal numbers, that's the first step. And if it tells us, okay, there's something we need to look at more, then you look at the data and the video and say, is this a Lionel Messi we're dealing with or is this a Lacazette we're dealing with? And for those that haven't read or, or don't know uh, or are not inside the, the sort of echo chamber we have, that is Twitter. Um, Chad Murphy is a political scientist uh, in, the, in the States um, and he essentially wrote how you should the, the, so the whole point of this debate or the whole the, where this question came from was that recently uh, Chad wrote a piece essentially saying that you should you know Moneyball two point or you know whatever you want to call it um, is where you should sell your you know your overperforming players and cash in on them. Um, so we'll put a link to that blog below with the so you can just sort of follow on from what we're saying here if you've not read it already. Cool. So I think we can move on to the next topic, which was. Uh, the demise of Grantland. The demise of Grantland will impact the promoting of analytics. I really like this question. This debate. <laughs> so this is going to be tough. So I'm going to. I'm taking the yes side on this, and Tom will fight the the opposite. So I think one thing that Grantland did an amazing job of is communicating analytics ideas to a broader audience and not using super analytical or numerical or mathematical terms. And Mike Goodman, obviously, who we talk about a lot in this show. It was a great example of working in expected goals work into his pieces. And uh, Kirk Goldsberry is another one who did a really good job of working with NBA data and sort of translating that to a larger audience. Jonah Carey on the uh, MLB side. And these are all guys, well, the exception of Kirk Goldsberry, but um, Goodman and Carey are both not analysts in and of themselves in that they are working with data every single day and trying to find things. It's just that these are guys who are very good writers very good communicators and take these ideas and s- share them with a wider audience. So I think hundred percent Grantland closing or shutting down is going to promote, or it's going to impact negatively the promotion of analytics to a wider sphere because you need first off a wide platform, which ESPN gave Grantland and the ability to let your writers write what they want, which was sort of the appeal of Grantland, right? It was these sports writers who are writing what they're interested in. I think there was a lot less, Edit, um, edit, sort of editorial guidelines. They were free to do what they wanted. There's a lot of great long-form pieces. There's great short-form pieces. And I think this communication aspect of analytics to the broader community is something that we're going to miss a lot with Grantland going. I think that the sort of nature of the ESPN network as it currently is, um, and with, say, we've already seen it this week with Kurt Goldsby moving to uh, 538. As much as I enjoyed Grantland, I still think that you know, you've got a, a whole platform which essentially is devoted to, um, you know, stories with numbers behind them and, and in a more sort of sports, you know, specific sense, uh, you know, analytics and sports um, with 538. So I think that although Grantland, you know, it'll be a miss, I think that there is a, a good platform for ESPN to sort of shuffle 
these writers over across to. Um, as much as I like Grantland, it was great at telling stories. Um, I still think that 538 is a, a good platform for that. Um, and equally, you know, a lot of the a lot of the analytics stuff with the sort of hard and firm uh, numbers behind it, you can see on other some of, uh, on other sites new um, sort of ideas come up all the time on um, baseball prospectus and um, uh, what's the bus basketball one uh, nylon calculus as well so there are obviously like there are stats bomb and various others so like there are places to find this analytics work and i just think that potentially with grantland going you don't have these sort of like stories as they are um which can help present this research in a more of a sort of reader friendly less mathsy tone which you know excellent writers like mike goodman and kurt goldsby are able to do so although grantland's gone i still think there's obviously an area in the market for another uh, sort of website to pop up and write these uh, less numbersy, more storified pieces. Um, but I still think that there's enough sort of places on the internet for analytics to keep growing and keep uh, being shared, and you know the conversation keep growing, um, even though Grantland's gone. Yeah, but I think you've just listed three or four sites that are analytics sites. So if you're not interested in analytics, you're not going to go search out Nylon Calculus or Baseball Prospectus or Fangraphs or whatever. But if you're just a sports fan, you're going to go to Grantland. I mean, this is how cool is it that on one site I got like my Game of Thrones recap from last night and then clicked on some piece that would have expected goals and then go read something about sumo wrestling in Japan. Like Grantland was just this really cool site that brought together all these different ideas and all these different writers who had different audiences that they would bring to the same location. Whereas like if I'm just a normal, I don't want to say that we're not normal, but if I'm a sports fan who doesn't care about analytics, I'm not going to go to nylon calculus. Whereas if I was just a regular sports fan who likes good writing, who appreciates um, the sort of style that Grantland had, then maybe I'm going to be introduced to something new by reading Kirk Goldsberry or by reading Mike Goodman or Jonah Carey or someone like that. And I think that's what, the impact of Grantland is really going to be is that it's going to become sports analytics will have to be on more niche websites as opposed to something that has a broad overarching, well, it didn't even have an overarching theme. It was like pop culture and sports and whatever people want to write about. And the fact that analytics got into that conversation and such a broad conversation, I think was really, really helpful for promoting analytics. I think there's definitely potentially a cultural divide here though. Like, um, for me, my journey into like being part of the analytics community started from like most people uh, reading Moneyball and then the numbers game and then starting a blog and then all the thing up to starting a podcast and then a consultancy. Like Grandland wasn't integral to that; it was a part of it. And like um, you know, I consumed a lot of my analytics content to start at Statsbomb, and that's not to say you know Grandland is gone, but that's not to say people aren't able to just you know, go to a search engine and type sports analytics or start asking people on Twitter or sort of finding new sources. Like, Grantland was a piece of a jigsaw. It was a large piece of a jigsaw, but it's still, you know, a piece of the jigsaw that is obviously now missing and therefore, you know, people are going to have to go to these new sites. You know, I think that 538 um, are going to take on a lot of the writers there and I think that they're going to do some really great things. We've seen that this season with, you know, Carmelo, Carmelo, I don't even know how you pronounce it, I think, but like, there's some good stuff on there. Um, I definitely think that they need to grow their, the soccer side of things, and I'd be very surprised if they didn't start doing that, you know, in, in, in sort of the weeks and months to come. Um, 
Equally, you've got companies like Stats who've just bought Prozone, um, and they've got all this data. And you see sometimes they bring out really tiny articles, um, but I think that there's you know there's an area for them to do stuff as well. And I wouldn't be surprised for them to bring something uh, sort of public in the near future, just to sort of grow their brand and also have something that's interactive, like what formerly was um, Bloomberg Sports. Um, so I think that you know Grantland's gone is bad but equally there this is divide for I think potentially for the American market it was a lot bigger because of everyone knows who Bill Simmons is and everyone consumes sports in a completely different way whereas over here I'd say that we're not as uh, embracing to analytics as we potentially should be but you have guys at the Guardian you have Gab Marcotti you have you know people like um you know Joel Salomon who makes excellent YouTube videos which you know it starts that conversation people are looking at sports and then they want to find a video and it's sort of fighting the corner for analytics and they go hmm you know this is cool I want to find some more sort of blogs or, or writing in this area to sort of you know read about and then potentially contribute to in the future so um, yeah yeah but you're mentioning places like well like Joel's YouTube videos or got Marcotti's writing which are for a more general audience and then they are sort of the conduit through which people find analytics and find sites like Statsbomb and stuff. But if you're when you lose Grantland, you lose one of those conduits that sort of helps people make the jump from whatever else they're reading about sports to analytics. And so I think that is what the miss is going to be. It's not the fact that you're missing that writing. I mean, the writing will be there, as you said, in other places, but you're missing that avenue that you can get to from regular sports writing to sports analytics writing. Exactly. But I think that the sort of wider uh, issue here, and it's not just with analytics and it's not with blogging, it's with, say, the internet in general, is how are we effectively going to, in 2015, start uh, monetizing content on the web? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge other debate is how do we keep, if there's, if we assume there's value in like Grantland, how do we keep it alive? And that's not something I think we can answer on this show. But (laughs) yeah, I think. The moral of the story is that we miss Grantland already. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll break my uh, my side there to say that. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, next question is, um, which I'm going to uh, defend, um, trying to define a match as fun or not using stats is a dumb idea. So, Sam, I think you've got your work cut out on this one. <laughs> um, so, I think that to start with, like, one of, one of the sort of key things I've learned from the last, say, six months is that you know, to effectively analyse anything in football, you need to be looking at the video. Like football is played on the pitch; it's not played in spreadsheets. It's not played in my R Studio console. It's not played. You know, it's played elsewhere, but pri- you know, primarily it's played on the football pitch. Actions happen on the pitch. You know, the whole reason uh, a lot of people you know spend their time analysing and watching data and and you know using data around football is to sort of uh, try and influence the actions on the field and turn that into wins. So, like, if you're not watching football and enjoying football on, you know, the video alongside stats, um, then, you know, and just looking at stats anyway, it's hard to say, oh, you know, this game was really fun uh, from, like, a spreadsheet. Like, it's really difficult to do if you're not watching the game. I think that, you know, the way you enjoy sport is by consuming the actual sport itself and not the numbers behind it. At least that's the way that I guess you should consume it, (laughs) unlike us. Um... (laughs) Well, we, I think that we should try and take away our biases from everything that we do. We should try and be as objective as possible when we're talking about sports. And that should carry over to what we think is good and not good. If you watch a match and you say, 
I'm having a lot of difficulty with this. <laughs> <laughs> and you say, I really enjoyed this game. And then you realize that no one else enjoyed this game or that objectively it was a less good game. Then you should know that. So in the future, you can decide which games you like and which you don't. So Sam, when was the last time you watched the game and really enjoyed it and then checked the sort of box score afterwards and <laughs> sort of went, I, I actually really hated this game. It doesn't happen. Well, actually, it doesn't probably happen. When I, well, probably when I went to uh, watch Man United like two weeks ago at Old Trafford. Because I had a great time and it was a shit game. Which I should have known by looking at the expected goal totals, which were like <laughs> less than one for both teams. Yeah, but you enjoyed it, the fact that even though looking at the numbers, it was terrible, so... Yep, but I should have known better. I was naive. You were. Um, I think it's fair to say I don't agree with this one at all. Yeah, it's kind of a difficult one. I think that you need to find, I mean, we were, you know, you need to find someone who really, really is in favour of, of, of numbers over the, you know, football. And as much as, you know, I don't think you can enjoy football, uh, you know, and just look at the stats. Like, that's not possible. Why, why would you do that? Like, there there are other reasons to enjoy a football game or whatever, rather than just which has the most shots or excitement or expected goals or whatever. I think that, like, narrative is cool. When it, when you hear a cool story and a team, like, goes... I mean, perfect example is Costa Rica during the World Cup. That wasn't a super fun team to watch. I mean, they sat back a lot. They defended really well. But that those games were so exciting to watch because that was, like, a great narrative. And that's something that... I don't want stats to tell me that that narrative sucked because Costa Rica played a really defensive, boring style. So, yeah, I don't agree with this one. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I think I won that one quite easily. I think I'll concede that one to you. Cool. That's fair. Uh, next. Okay. So the next one is that we should combine TSR and expected goals to create a super expected goal TSR shot stat, which would be useful for analyzing games. Um... Yeah, I think this is a good idea, actually, because I think we have expected goals, which tell us, obviously, chance quality, and then you have TSR, which talks about chance quantity, kind of. And uh, Danny Page wrote a really interesting article looking at how expected goals are actually uh, not just cumulative, that they multiply, I think was the way he said it, which makes sense. I mean, if you're, it's about risk spreading, right? So if you have um, one expected goal chance in a game that's worth 0.8, that's not necessarily the same as having like 10 different chances that add up to 0.8. That's maybe not a great example, but if you have more chances, you're going to spread your risk a little more and that's going to um, help you, I guess, reach your expected goal totals more often. So in, I mean, in uh, stats terms, your expected value might be the same from two different distributions of shots, but the variance around that expected value is going to be much smaller if you have more shots So I think it's an important thing to look at that how a team is creating their expected goals or how a team is conceding their expected goals. Because if it's one big chance a game, that means a lot, something very different from 10 smaller chances in a game. So I think that coming up with some stat that weights these two and portrays all this information in one is, it's worthwhile to look at. Now, while you're saying that, I've just looked up a previous post by 11, Tegan 11, and he's done exactly this. And uh, the, uh, like a combined, uh, it's, I think it's called an expected goal ratio, which essentially expected goals and total shot ratio uh, has stronger correlations um, both season on season and versus total points than just expected goals and just total shots ratios. Um, so I think arguing against using it at all, uh, I can't really do because it obviously works. 
Um, but I think that um, having a stat like this, and it's something maybe going back to the the sort of PDO argument we've had previously, is that you can add all these stats together in one, uh, you know, all these metrics together in one stat. Um, the usefulness of that is that it's really difficult to sort of tease out the conclusions from that. Um, like just looking at PDO, you can have a PDO of 100, but you could have a save percentage of 50 and a scoring percentage of uh, 50% also. Both are like massively at the opposite, opposite, ends, of the, the opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, so therefore, sort of combining the, you know, the expected goals together in a sort of a ratio, it's good because you can see you know, whether you're outperforming, you know, whether you're expected to score more than you're expected to concede, that makes sense. But equally, you know, taking it, you don't know how many shots the team's taken. Um, you know, there, there are so much, you know, you don't have game states because then in that case, you know, if your team, say, uh, potentially like Leicester, you know, they've been, a high, been behind quite a lot this season and therefore taking more shots, you don't really see, you know, the expected goals, um sort of rationale behind that you don't see the further you know context with that so i think with a lot of stats like these like they are useful and there are so many tools out there that analysts can be using you know you have tsr you have pdo uh, expected goals um you know ben and, and sort of we've done some really interesting stuff on the on the twitter this week about sort of box entries and things like that like those are all really useful things but what all these stats sort of lead to do is that you need to go deeper with the analysis. You need to go deeper as to why these things are useful. You know, you can show show a graph of expected goals in a game, and you can say, you know, this team won't set it more expected goals. But you know, why is that? Because the the defending team was was good. It's because that the players are far superior. So I think that a lot of these stats, uh, you know, you can think of of quite a few other new metrics that might be useful. But at the end of the day, what really adds value with these things is the message behind them. Yeah, and I think that's a fair point, that it's a stat like this would be a really good starting point to say, this is sort of the value that this team is creating in terms of combining TSR and expected goals, and then dig into that stat to sort of figure out what what are the two different causes. Is it the expected goals that's driving it, or is it the TSR that's driving it? And we've also talked on the show before about how TSR and expected goals, but mainly TSR, has varying effectiveness throughout the leagues. In the Premier League, it works very, very well. In MLS, in Liga, in a couple other, in like other lesser leagues, I don't, that's a little rude to say lesser leagues, but in other leagues that aren't at the same quality as the Premier League, TSR has a lot less effectiveness and to a smaller extent expected goals is less effective. So I think that having something like this, which combines the two, might exacerbate these differences. But at the same time, it's a good starting point to say, okay, what is a team doing in terms of both defensive? output and attacking output in terms of these two stats, which have become probably the two most prevalent stats in advanced football analytics. And I think going, you know, going back to um, sort of maybe the you know, Twitter thing again, I think there are definitely two sort of, you know, subsets of, of the people that we share content to on, on Twitter and with the blog in general. One of them are, you know, people who consume football and they are seem to like enjoy stats and analytics and, you know, their, what they get out of you know having analytics and using it is that you know they have a different angle in a debate you know you can talk about expected goals or you can talk about team quality and something like that and these sort of small consumable things that people put out on twitter whether they're stats or you know graphics are really useful for that and they're you know they're cool to share it's very like high level here's this you know there's no answers behind that 
Um, and I think that, you know, this, this sort of metric would be useful. It would be another one, you know, um, you look at last season and you see which teams are far creating better chances than conceding them. Um, and then on, your, on the other hand, and we, we probably both know this now from trying to work with, you know, with teams as a consultancy, um, the, you know, there's a separate audience who take these things and they're going, you know, yes, so what, you know, you can show this thing to me, but what value is it adding? And things like that. So I think there's definitely like, you know, there's two schools of thought of where the usefulness of this would be for. Um, and I think that it's just, you know, getting scripts with what is, you know, fun and interesting and, and is good to be shared with on Twitter or, you know, social media in general, just because it provides quite a cool, quick insight. And then equally, what is, you know, useful uh, in actual analysis terms and, you know, stuff that actually generates more questions than it does just, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, for sure. And I think it is, um, like, something like this, I think is going to have different effects for a team or different applications for a team than it would just for being, like, posting on Twitter and saying, this is cool, check it out. Yeah. So the next question is essentially, well, the next debate is essentially, um, analytics can help players in contract negotiations and or work permits. Um, so I'll be fighting for this one. So I guess that analytics helping players in contract negotiations, I know less about work permits, but I'd say for contract negotiations, a player goes to the team. Um, I think for, you know, a younger player, it's useful because you can sort of say, look, uh, I've been putting up these numbers, you know, I've been score, I've been providing X and Y amount of expected goals and I've been making, you know, Z number of appearances. And you can use the numbers in your favor to present a case for a contract extension, um, you know, a recontract where, you, you know, you get a higher baseline wage. Um, and even, you know, a player coming to the last year of his contract who might be quite old, you know, th- going on to his mid to end 30s, you know, can you use uh, medical data? Can you use sort of... Um, analysis in that area to say look I might be old and I know, I know I'm getting to the end of my career but I can still add value to this team you know you can look at my uh, medical data you can look at sort of my injury record things like that to try and um, gain a new contract as well so I think that there are ways that you can sort of say it depends what you're looking for either an extension or like a you know an increased salary essentially proving your value and, and worth to the team um, in terms of work permits I'm not sure how that's going to work with the team because I don't have any sort of understanding of that I don't know if you have Sam um but yeah I think there are there are ways that players could try and use this um and equally it might come back to the sort of thing we spoke about at the start in terms of you know selling players who are outperforming expected goals should you sign a player say like uh, it's not a player but should Paul Lambert have been giving a a brand new uh four-year contract or however the length however long the length of contract was um after a really good start to last season like you've got to look deeper if you're the club side but on the player side yeah by all means like use these um as arguments to get yourself a better wage you know a more secure financial future yeah i think i first off I don't have anything to back this up, but I'd be very surprised if this already isn't being used by players and by agents to try and get a better contract or try and organize a move from one club to another. But as some like a good data analyst, I sort of morally have an issue with this because I think the way analytics works or the way data analysis works, as you say, this is a question I'd like to know the answer to. You go to the data and then you say, this is what the data say, and this is the answer we get out of it, or at least this is what the data Sorry, I hate that expression. This is what the data say, but this is what we this is what we take from the data, and this is sort of what we think might be the answer to this question. But when you're using it on the player side, you're obviously not going to use like data that say uh, this 
players outperforming his expected goals, back to the earlier point, and he's going to regress. Like, that's not something that you're ever going to use in contract negotiations. Say, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't offer me that much. I'm not worth nearly that much, right? You're always going to use these numbers and these analytics to try and improve a player, like to try and make the player look better than they are, or at least try and make a player more enticing to a club to buy. So I think like from an analytical perspective, this is kind of shady to me because you're going to go, you have something that you want to find in the numbers and you're going to go find it in the numbers, right? You're not doing objective analytics here. You're saying, I want to make my player look better. What can I go and find that makes my player look better? So I think I've got like a moral issue with this, although I'd be really surprised if it isn't already happening. I mean, this goes back to uh, what Dan Altman posted a few months ago, uh, something by economist George Akerlof about selling lemons. Essentially, you know, if a, a used car salesman knows more about the car than the potential buyer and therefore can influence the price, you know, above or below average, depending on the condition of the car. So he'll make you overpay for a bad car and potentially won't even sell or sell at an even higher price a good car. So, like, there are the things, ways that... Um, you know, agents can use this, and it's the whole thing with statistics. You know, you can you can use statistics to tell any message because the statistics mm-hmm. don't lie. It's the sort of uh, what you're trying to show with those underlying statistics, anyway. So, yeah, like I do agree with you, Sam. Outside of the debate, but sort of in the debate, I think that um, you know there are ways that <laughs> are you allowed to do that? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, nah. I have done. Um, I think there are ways that you know agents can use this in a non-sort of uh, you know biased and non, um, I guess shady shady way. You know, you can use medical data, which essentially mm-hmm. wouldn't tell you you know it's lying. Um, you know, you can look at previous players in, in an agent's portfolio and, and say you know these players have all had similar levels of stuff. You can rely on me, something like that. So you know, it comes back to that way, and then also. I guess for players as well, that we've not never touched on how sort of analytics can improve individual player um, sort of performance. I know that uh, in basketball, there's at least one. There's probably several now. Um, sort of uh, consultants who work one on one with players to improve their game. So obviously, this isn't the financial side of things, but I think there are ways that it all comes down to analytics and, and sort of the physical side of the game that is more measured in training and, you know, on the medical table during tests and not, you know, on these on-pitch actions that we have. Um, but I think there are ways there that players can therefore use the data from that and say, look, I'm training really hard. Um, you've got my benchmark using your catapult data here. And you can see that in my, you know, personal time, I'm training at these levels, you know, above my benchmark and things like that. So I think there, you know, are ways, but I think that this is, this is like, um, like Damien Kimoli said last episode, this is um, medical analytics, this is the next frontier, and this is stuff that, you know, even, there's not even a public, like, and naturally there isn't because it's very personal information, but, you know, data like this can provide a lot more insight into the, the person physically than um, potentially on-pitch stuff can be, that we have currently. Um, yeah, and I think, it like, sometimes the data will help, right? I mean, it, like, as you said, maybe a player's old, but they actually have something about their playing style or the way they've like been trained or whatever that makes them less assess- less susceptible to injury. And if that's the case, it's worth showing that data to a club. But I'm talking more, I think, if, like it would be an issue for me if Wayne Rooney came up to me tomorrow and said, I'll pay you, well, actually, depending on how much he paid me, maybe I would <laughs> suck it up and do it for him, but said, like, explain to Man United why I'm worth another six-year contract i mean obviously he's not right but if they're using analytics they're going to try and find the numbers and take out the numbers that 
make it look like Wayne Rooney's worth another six-year contractor. That's probably not a great example, but I think it's just the idea of when you start from when you start from a place of I need to get this conclusion and I'm going to use the data to get this conclusion. That's not good data analytics. Not at all. I don't think it's reliable either. And I, you know, I think the Wayne Rooney example is quite a good one because whoever has that, he, you know, his agent has that task. It's ridiculously hard to try and sell that. I mean, if the whole fan consensus is that he's poor, and even underlying numbers say that you know he's not exactly brilliant. So you know, but then equally, you know, agents can leverage that. Everyone would have said that Didier Drogba is kind of washed up and he's no good in England, and then he goes to uh, Montreal in the in MLS and scores on average a goal a game. Like there are ways that teams and and you know players can potentially spin this and if it's not working in a big league maybe it's working in a, a smaller league you know Kakar as well it's probably a good example um, and you know I think there's because of this disparity I guess this is more an MLS versus sort of European model debate but because of the disparity between these leagues you know that there are leagues for players to go to probably don't even need this high level of analysis just to sort of sell themselves to clubs. So our next topic is an English team will get to the Champions League semifinals this year. So I am the for and Tom is against. Uh, I think when you look at the English teams that are in the Champions League right now, you've got Manchester United, who probably I don't think will be wrapped up in a title race and are actually designed to do well in Europe, not designed to do well in Europe, but they're a team that you can see doing really well in Europe because, A, I mean, they're ridiculously defensive, which will help. They're not going to concede a lot. Over a two-leg tie like this, if you don't score in one game, which often happens to Man United, it's not the end of the world. I think this is a team you could see go deep in the Champions League, just eking out 1-0 aggregate wins or 2-0 aggregate wins or whatever, just because their defensive shape is so much more solid than, I think, anyone else in the Premier League. Then you look at Arsenal. That <laughs> I guess the issue with Arsenal will be whether they're <laughs> in the next round or not. And so, okay, let's let's move on from Arsenal. I don't think Arsenal will be there. Chelsea, this is their season, right? If Chelsea figures something out, figures out whatever is wrong and starts playing well by February, the focus in the league is going to be next to none. I don't think Chelsea is going to finish top four this year. They might be in a top four race, but even then, I think the focus is going to be on the Champions League. Mourinho's won it before. He's won it, I mean, with two different clubs before, right? He has always said he wants to win it with Chelsea. I think that Chelsea are a good shot at going far this year in the Champions League. And then you have Man City, who are the perennial Champions League disappointments. I mean, it's got to happen one year, right? That's not, that's not a good reason, but they're such a strong team this year. I mean, I really, really like their front four. I really like what um, Pellegrini's done. I think with De Bruyne and with Sterling on top of everyone else they have, they're a much stronger team this year than they were last year. So I think it's not a stretch to say that one of those three teams is going to make the Champions League semis this year. Um, see, I think that... I think. The other side of, the, of of this question, I guess, is you know what teams outside of Premier League going to make the the Champions League semi final. So um, I think Barcelona are a given, like probably nearly every year. Uh, Bayern Munich probably ahead of them also. Um, Paris Saint Germain, uh, they they look you know they they practically run away with the French league every year. Sadly, um, I think that they've still got a, a very strong squad. Um, and then equally, you've got Real Madrid as well, who are playing really boring football under. Um, uh, Benitez, but it's you know they're getting results. It's fine. Um, so I think that you know there's those guys. It's really difficult to sort of look past them. Um, you know you could have you know them meet each other in in the quarters or or you know earlier, um, which could be a struggle. Um, 
But I think that, you know, with English sides, it's hard. I, City are good, but equally, like, you know, their, their record in Europe isn't great. And I think just the strength of those other European teams uh, means that if any of these guys are going to run into them, they're going to probably try and outscore you. Whereas, you know, so therefore Man United are sort of out unless they can be, you know, phenomenal defensively. Um, I think Juventus are another side, like potentially Chelsea, who, uh, you know, they haven't chucked the league just yet, but, you know, they've got an uphill battle and therefore they're sort of, you know, do they try and get into the Champions League next year through advancing through the league versus winning the Champions League? Then I think the league is the priority in that case. So um, I just think that the strength of the other teams in Europe are going to be uh, better, sadly, than than probably the three that are going to go through. Uh, I'm fingers crossed that Arsenal can get through, but I, you know, I, I can't really see it. Yeah, I I mean, if those are the only four teams, though, the odds that those four teams avoid each other until in the draw until the semifinals is not high, right? True. And PSG, I I really struggle putting PSG in that group. I mean, maybe that's just bias that I don't see PSG nearly as much as those other three teams you've mentioned, but I, I struggle to put them in the same group or that much ahead of those three English teams that we mentioned earlier. And then Juventus... I mean, Juventus, I think Juventus is a worse team this year than last year. I don't think there's any argument against that. Uh, James York had a really good piece on the stats bomb looking at them. But they're not, uh, like, there are issues with the team. I mean, obviously, they're underperforming right now. They're not. They're better than the seventh best team in Italy or wherever they are in the Serie A standings. But I think if you look at Juventus, they're not, I mean, Vidal is a big loss. Tevez is a big loss. Uh, Pirlo is a decently big loss still. I think that you're looking at a significantly weaker team, and I don't think they're stronger than, at least stronger than, they're definitely not stronger than Man City. So I, a lot comes down to the draw, it's hard to say, but I really would not be surprised. And I actually, I think if you were to ask me, completely aside from this debate, 50-50, will an English team make this Champions League semifinals? I'd take that bet. So I guess it's worth looking through the sort of standings as they are. Um Real Madrid and Paris Saint-Germain are practically through, um, if not through already. Um, Man United and then one of either Eindhoven and Wolfsburg, I guess. I don't see Eindhoven and Wolfsburg probably as a threat. I mean, these are the teams that, if they're going to do well in the competition, it's going to be quite either a lucky or just very good run, which I can't really see from there. Um, Benfica are another side who like used to be like perennial Europa League contenders, I feel. Um, and they're alongside Atletico Madrid, who I think like are are a good team on their day. They're another side that you know defensively were probably the best in Europe for back to back seasons. Um, now I think that with the, a lot of changes happened at Atletico Madrid over the last few years, and um, you know those two sides are the, are the ones that could do something there. Um, City, Juventus, like we said before. <sighs> See, I don't want to agree with you that City could do something this year, but equally, you know. There are a lot of other good sides here, um, and I just I just see it really difficult that an English team that are underperforming like Chelsea, undershooting like uh, you know, underscoring sorry like United, and sort of you know have a bit of a misfortune, I guess, in in Europe like City. It's just difficult to look past, look look at them as you know genuine contenders at the semi final. You have some real surprises though that could happen, like Zenit are four for four unbeaten, Porto top of their group. Like I think that it's going to require quite a lot of luck, either dodging those previous big four that I mentioned, or just luck in beating these other sides. Because it seems quite open this year, but I don't know whether the English teams are good enough to sort of reach that top four. Yeah, I mean it'll be really interesting. It's hard. It's so hard to predict the Champions League just because 
there is so much that can happen over a two-legged tie that's hard to sort of use numbers or whatever else to figure out. Absolutely, which means that, um, I mean, it goes back to, again, like the, the sort of kind of analytics work in a playoff, uh, I guess. And, it, it you know, the teams that are um, going to do better in the competition either are going to be of a higher quality, have a lot of luck on their side, or arguably have, like, a, you know, the best, um, you know, team, the best match preparation teams, uh, you know, at the club. We'll see. Champions League's really fun, and I know it's back this Tuesday, so I'm looking forward to that. Should be uh, should be good. So I think that about wraps up our debate topics, unless there's anything else you want to plug before we go. Um, nothing really. Just check out the uh, Analytics, Analytics FC blog. I know that we've written a few things up there um, recently. Um, so if you're interested in sort of the work we've done on there, check it out. Um, I know you've got a couple of plugs, Sam, I think. Yeah, I'll first up, I wanted to plug um, Dan, who's uh, We Are Premier League on, or We Are PL on Twitter, uh, put on this sport and data event last week. I went, Ben went, it was a lot of fun. They had uh, sessions on GPS data in football, uh, how to sort of run an academy well, what to look for in academy players. Um, there was a representative from Opta there. They talked about um, transfer fees and tape position. There were a lot of interesting presentations. And then also, it's just like a great event to network, to meet other people. And I think that sometimes analytics conversations, because they happen almost exclusively over Twitter, are limited to sort of, obviously, 140 character limit. And there's less back and forth. And to actually, like, get out and meet people and talk to other people who are doing interesting things is a really good opportunity. So Dan, I think, has said he's going to do another one next year, earlier next year, after Christmas. So check out, look out for that. And if you're in London, come out, say hi to me and whoever else is there because it's a, it's a really good time. Cool. I think that just about wraps it up for this week. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam.